Well, welcome again to Bible Center Church. It's great having you here. My name is Matt Friend. I'm the senior pastor. Welcome to Bible Center. I was away last weekend. I had the weekend off. Our family went and visited another church in Kentucky uh, just to learn a few things that we could bring back for our ministry here. But when I came back, my neighbor uh, was here last Sunday. He's, he attends. A number of our neighbors attend here at Bible Center. One of my neighbors said, Matt, you understand the secret to leadership. And I thought he was complimenting me, right? Like I thought he was getting ready to like really say something really nice. We all like getting complimented. He said, Matt, you understand the secret to leadership. And I said, Dave, what are you talking about? He said, last week Mike preached, and I, and I know you understand the secret to leadership. The secret is hiring people who are a whole lot smarter than you. That's the secret to leadership. And just about the time I was ready to thank Dave, I realized what he was saying, but it was still super encouraging to hear the message and to hear what God did in your heart. I love, love, love what God's doing in our church family. Great to have you here with us. Let me invite you to a service two weeks from now. We're going to be at the Municipal Auditorium, as has been announced. Uh, this is the year of our 75th anniversary, and so right about the time Bible Center was coming on the scene, the Municipal Auditorium was being built. We've got a special service planned that day. Bring a friend with you. Bring a neighbor. There's plenty of room. There's something for the whole family uh, to be a day that we want to honor the Lord, but also now turn and look to the next 75 years. Look to the future and see how God could use us to be for the gospel and for the city. This morning we're beginning a new series called All In, or what does an all-in church look like? What does it mean to be for the gospel and for the city? And what we're learning is that this phrase, being a church Charleston can't live without, is becoming kind of our internal phrase. It's kind of like our secret handshake, uh, something that we want to be, and we want to do that humbly. But we don't want to be the only church Charleston can't live without. There are a number of good churches in our city. We just want to be part of the conversation. So if Bible Center didn't exist, we would want Charleston to miss us. But we're learning that as you go downtown and people say, what are you all about? And we say, we want to be a church you can't live without. People don't quite know how to take that. So you hear more and more us saying externally for the gospel and for the city. That's what we mean by being a church Charleston can't live without. We're going to spend the next seven weeks looking at what kind of church is this? What does a church like this look like? How do they live in their city? If you haven't yet picked up the series manual for the book of Acts, it's combined with the one on Luke. We printed some more copies out in the lobby, but you can also get it off of the app or off of the website. This morning we're going to look at the first of seven messages from this section of Acts about how a New Testament church is unified. A New Testament church is unified around specific things. How many of you have ever gone to a tractor pull? Anybody ever gone to a tractor pull, truck pulls? I grew up going to those at the Civic Center. I think they had one at the, uh, down at the uh, Laidley Field. If we live in the Midwest, it wouldn't be tractor pulls as much as it would be horse pulls. I read this week about a horse pull in the Midwest where the champion horse pulled 4,500 pounds. The second place horse pulled 4,400 pounds, and a farmer had an idea. He thought, if we put the two horses together, how much could they pull? Could they pull an extra 100 pounds to make it an even 9,000? But when they put the horses together, they discovered that together they could pull over 12,000 pounds. 12,000 pounds. There's a principle that we learn from this. Alone we can do so little, 
but together we can do so much. Alone we can do so little, but together we can do so much. We see it in the way that Steve Jobs designed the Pixar office building. Steve Jobs, as you know, founded Apple. They dismissed him for a time. They fired him from his own company, essentially. And before he came back, he had this little struggling company called Pixar that eventually produced like a thousand movies, you know, partnered with Disney. But when he was building the office complex, at first it was designed with everybody had individual offices in three separate buildings. You had the scientists over here, the engineers over here, the executives over here. And then it occurred to him that teamwork brings the best out of everybody. And so he designed this building before he passed where there was a common space, a cafeteria. No one could have coffee machines in their own offices, no Keurigs. You had to come out of your office to get your coffee because he believed that working together produces more. Alone we can do so little, but together we can do so much. Next week, some of us are going to go watch a movie, The Avengers Infinity War. How many of you plan to go see the movie? Anybody? Two or three of you? Willing to admit it? Yeah. This movie is just, uh, from what I'm reading of the reviews, is this same phrase, alone we can do so little, but together we can do so much. So before I really get started, I have to ask, are there any risks involved in teamwork? This sounds great, teamwork, let's all get together, rah, 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 and do a lot for Jesus. But are there any risks involved in people joining the same team? If you think there's a risk involved, like shake your head or something like, okay, yeah, there's a lot of risks involved. At the 8 a.m. service, I asked the folks, what are some of the risks about working on a team? And people said things like, you know, selfishness or uh, division or gossiping or people want it my way or the highway. There's a lot of risks involved. And I was reminded this week that even on the best, most loving teams, people can aggravate you. This is what I mean. Saturday morning, the day after the special needs prom, I go to shave. I always shave with the same razor, or this actually the same electric razor. I have it set to beard trimmer. I have it set on number five. I've used it for like eight years. I've had a beard for eight years straight. No problem. I just go touch my razor, pick it up, and I use it. No one ever bothers dad's razor, dad's trimmer. Well, Saturday morning, the day after the prom, I go and I pick up my, my beard trimmer. I start trimming. I do one pass. And when I did the second pass, without even thinking, still trying to wake up, let the coffee hit my blood, it sounded like a lawnmower in deep grass. <laughs> and I look in the mirror and I realize I've like taken a gash, not only out of my beard, but actually out of right here too. So like, it's, it's, it's not savable. Like there's no goatee, there's no blending it in, there's no... So, you know, I asked the family, who touched my beard trimmer? Just curious. I said it with a smile, sort of. <laughs> and coming to find out, getting ready for the special needs prom, some young ladies decided to use it to trim some things to make the hairdo just right. And they had that thing set on zero instead of five. So needless to say, I have a new look, and it's not voluntary. People that you love can aggravate you. In a church setting, people can aggravate you at work, your family. But this morning, I want to encourage you to keep pressing in. 
No matter how much people bug you and bother you, if you're tempted to go and be a lone ranger, let me ask you to reconsider. And as we look in Acts chapter 2, let me encourage you that alone we can do so little, but together we can do so much. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 37. I invite you to stand if you're physically able. Acts chapter 2 and verse 37. I'll be reading from the NIV. Feel free to follow along in whatever translation you brought. Acts 2 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. From all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together and with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If there ever was a diverse group of people, this group of people was diverse. We didn't read the entire chapter, but at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, you're going to see that there were people from all parts of the known world gathered together in Jerusalem. There were people from northern Africa, people from Egypt, people from, of course, Israel, people from southern Russia, people from modern-day Iran and Iraq, uh, people from Greece, people from Rome, possibly even people from Spain. These people had gathered together in one city at one time. And we think about some of the diversity issues that we're wrestling through as a culture here. We have nothing compared to what they were wrestling through back then. They didn't even understand each other's languages. But the Apostle Peter gets up and preaches the gospel. He preaches about how God created all things, about how sin broke all things, but how Jesus came to save all things. And when he preached about Jesus who had died on the cross and was buried and rose again the third day, he looked at them and he said, since most of them had a Jewish background, he said, this is your Messiah. This is the promised one who would come. He talked to them about how Jesus could transform their lives and even hinted at how one day God was going to restore all things. And 3,000 people believed the message we call the good news. They became Christians. We find that in the scriptures, right after they became Christian, Peter gives them some specific instructions on how they're to live the Christian life. 
how they're to stay unified as, as a new body, a baby body of believers. Now, I've heard a lot in 16 years of pastoral ministry, people will sometimes say the secret to being unified is just to make much of Jesus. If you just simply talk about Jesus and focus on Jesus, don't worry about doctrine. Don't worry about the specifics of church. Just focus on Jesus and you'll stay unified. If you're a student of history, you'll know that that has never and will never work. Just saying love Jesus doesn't bring us together. And God knows that. In an ideal world, I wish it would. Maybe in an ideal world, it would. In eternity, in heaven, of course, without a sin nature, it will. But God knows that we're forgetful people. And in this passage, the Lord gives the early church nine different ways, nine different reminders, kind of like a liturgy, nine things to do to stay unified. I told one of my good friends yesterday, hey, I've got nine points in my sermon tomorrow. He said, Matt, you typically give us three. That means that six are free. Six are free. I said, yeah, we're going to blow through these quickly, but I hope you'll take notes and think about how they apply to Bible Center Church and how they can bring us together. First of all, what unifies our church? Baptizing together. Number one, baptizing together. Baptism unifies the local church around a common gospel and a common memory of what Jesus has done for us. In Acts chapter 2, we see that baptism is very, very closely linked with salvation. He says in Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. You're going to want to write this down. The word for in Acts 2.38 means on the basis of. Acts 2.38 is not teaching that in order to get to heaven, you've got to get wet. There are denominations, even in West Virginia, some smaller denominations that teach to go to heaven, you got to believe in Jesus, and you got to get wet. And you're not on your way to heaven until that day. Well, a common argument against this, of course, is that the criminal on the cross never was baptized. And Jesus looked at him and he said, what? Today you'll be with me in paradise. The book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 3, is very, very clear. Salvation is by faith alone. But in the book of Acts, it was so common for people to put their faith in Jesus and right away get baptized, right away. So over and over again in the book, you see they put their faith in Jesus and they're baptized. So there's two extremes. One extreme says, hey, you know, baptism is required for salvation, but the rest in the New Testament contradicts that. The other extreme, I think, is maybe where we've leaned in our version of Christianity, maybe a bit, is that now baptism is just kind of optional, right? It's just kind of out there, kind of like, do you, want, do you want power door locks on your car or not? It's really not that big a deal. You, be, you believer in Jesus, maybe one day you'll get around to being baptized. The apostles would be appalled at that. They, they preach, no, you need to get baptized right away. And so this morning, I want to encourage you, if you've never been baptized, you're a believer in Jesus, maybe even been a believer for years, next month, May 13th, on Mother's Day, we're going to include a baptism service. And this week, I'm teaching a baptism class. There's one tomorrow night for the children, but we'll throw it up on the screen. There's one on Wednesday night for students and adults. 
I'm going to be teaching that class. I'm going to be doing the baptisms, partnering with Pastor Matt Garrison with the students. If you've never been baptized, come and hear what baptism is. It is a beautiful, beautiful gift to the church. And you can declare like New Testament Christians did, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm willing to be counted as a disciple. Baptism unifies the church. What else unifies the church? Number two, studying God's word together unifies the church. In verse 42, they continued in the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching. Who were the apostles? They were the leaders who had spent several years with Jesus. The apostles were those who had heard Jesus teach and preach and do good works in almost every imaginable setting. They lived with him and traveled with him for three years. And so the early church was continuing in the apostles' teaching. Think to yourself how awesome it would be to know what the apostles taught. I mean, if only we could go back and and see what the apostles wrote down. I mean, if only they had put it together on paper and, and handed it down to us to be able to read, what did they know? They had been with Jesus. They had walked with Jesus. If only we had that in a translation in every conceivable language on the globe. Obviously, we do. Some of you know where I was going. The apostles' teaching is the New Testament This half of the Bible, the New Testament, is is these eyewitnesses' accounts of the apostles and what they knew of Jesus and what they want us to know about Jesus today. D.L. Moody once said, if it's new, it isn't true. And if it's true, it isn't new. In other words, if somebody comes to you and they say, I've got something from God that's never been taught in the scriptures ever before, you can go ahead and let them know if it's new, it isn't true, and if it's true, it isn't new. Here's another litmus test, things our elders are talking through even currently. If there's any doctrine about which we're willing to die, any doctrine or truth that we are willing just to sink our, our dig our heels into and say, I am going to stand on this or else. If that doctrine isn't at least 2,000 years old, it's probably not a good idea for us to be willing to go to death for it. You see, throughout the, the centuries, 2,000 years of the church history, people have taken a verse here and a verse here, and they've put together what we call preferences or opinions. Opinions are like armpits. We all have them, and they all stink, right? I've got my opinions. You've got your opinions. I can give you a verse to back up my opinion. But what he's talking about here isn't opinion. It isn't persuasion. This is orthodox truth. Jesus is God. Salvation is by faith alone. Jesus will return. And the early church so sunk their teeth into rich, deep, historic doctrine that it grounded them in the faith. I've learned throughout the 75-year history that we've been reading over the last few months that this is Bible Center's tradition. This is Bible Center's history. We were founded first not as a church, but as a Bible study. For several years, Bible Center is called Bible Center because it was initially intended to be just a place where you came to learn the Bible, and then you went back to your other church on Sunday. 
There were classes. You had to pay for your materials. Reed Jepson and R.M. Maxwell would require you to commit for a length of time, six months, a year, two years, three years. You had to buy in and say, I want to go deep in God's word and I'm going to study. It wasn't like, well, maybe I'll come on a Wednesday night, maybe I won't. So what we're doing now as your pastors, we're bringing that back. And starting in May, we're going to launch a three-year Bible training initiative. It begins with this class, How to Study Your Bible. We're calling it a workshop because we're still arguing about the name. You've got to have a cool new name, but it's still the same old thing. But we're going to do a three-year commitment where you can say, hey, I want to go in by God's grace for three years. I'm going to try to study. The classes are going to be varied. Some are going to be one-night classes. Some are going to be offered at different times. Eventually, they'll be online where we can go through the Bible in a three-year period and know our Bibles inside and out. We can't wait to roll it out to you. But let me invite you to put this first class on your calendar, How to Study Your Bible, Let's learn the apostles' doctrine. Alone we can do so little, but together we can do so much. What unifies our church? Number three, committing to membership together. Verse 42. He says they devoted themselves to fellowship. It means to share a common life. It refers to being connected and devoting oneself to another. It's, it includes friendship, but it's more the idea of family. How many have ever seen the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding? Anybody ever seen that? A few of you. Think that. Like everybody has everything in common. That's the idea of, of fellowship. The idea of fellowship isn't just that I know another Christian, but in the original language, it's not just fellowship, but the word the is in front of it. It's left out of most translations. It doesn't change the meaning. But it's helpful to know that in this passage, he's talking about the fellowship. It's particular. He's talking about it's the first indication of church membership in the Bible. These people were committing to the fellowship of the church in Jerusalem. We see hints of membership all throughout the scriptures. Later on in Acts, we see that numerical records were kept. People were aware of who was in their church. In Romans 16, the Apostle Paul is able to list much of the membership of the church in Rome. In Acts 6, the apostles had to know who were members of the church before they could encourage them to vote. In Hebrews 13, the pastors are to know whom they're to shepherd. They're to know them by name, which some of us are still working on. But membership, you think about it, there are Christians in Charleston that don't belong to Bible Center. When I stand before the Lord as senior pastor, I'm not going to give account of Christians in Charleston who aren't connected to Bible Center. But I do believe when I get to heaven, I'm going to stand before the Lord on how I shepherd the people who have committed to Bible Center. And churches have done that in different ways throughout the centuries. But the way we do it here is we have a membership class, a membership weekend. It's a Friday night and a half a day on Saturday. And we just go deep in what our church, or give you a good survey anyway, of what our church is about. If you're not yet a member of Bible Center, can I encourage you to, to consider signing up for the weekend? Many of you have gone to a weekend or you've gone to an alpha class or a discovery group and you say, ah, I'm, I just haven't got around to having my interview. Today, if you'll just see Jane at the connect table and say, Jane, I'm ready 
to be a member. One of our pastors, one of our elders will meet with you and ask you about when you came to faith in Jesus and why you want to be a member at Bible Center. We just want to encourage you and love on you and see God grow our membership through committed people to this fellowship. Alone we can do so little, but together we can do so much. What unifies us as a church? Number four, taking communion together. Taking communion together. In verse 42, they committed to the breaking of bread. This was a first century expression for taking communion. In Acts 20 and verse 7, it's clear that the expression refers to taking communion. When the early church gathered to take communion, they didn't do it the same way we do it today. Initially, they took communion like Jesus gave communion at the Last Supper. Think about it. He is in the upper room with his disciples. They're sharing a meal. And in the course of the meal, Jesus breaks the bread and he passes the wine. Or for us, he passes the juice. You think about how communion was done for the first few hundred years of the church. It also revolved around a meal. People would get together. They would bring food, a potluck, put all the food together. And as the meal started, they would then break the bread at the beginning and say, this is his body broken for you. Then they would enjoy the meal together. And by the end of the meal, when they were ready to raise the glass and say, this cup is the new covenant of his blood done in remembrance of Jesus, everybody would take the juice or the wine, and they would remember Jesus' blood. But if you look at 1 Corinthians 11, we find that something happened with those meals. The thing about us as humans, if it can be broken, we'll find a way to break it. That's just usually the way things work. And so they were, they were using meals where people or the rich people were bringing in picnic baskets and keeping the meal to their families. The poor people who couldn't afford food were sitting over in the corner and they were starving. And the apostle Paul says, so that's why he says in 1 Corinthians 11, when you come together, if you can't do the meal right, just don't do the meal at all. Don't do the meal part. And so that's what stuck throughout 2,000 years, just doing the bread and just doing the juice. There could be a day, I can't, I can't imagine when, but there could be a day where we enjoy some big meal as a church and we do communion that way. But the neat thing about it is there's, there's not a lot of requirements for how to do communion. It never says the pastor has to be the one to give the bread and the juice. It never says the deacons have to be the one to give the bread and the juice. Our constitution says our deacons are responsible for preparing it. But around the world today, there will be men and women who are able to serve communion bread and communion juice. The emphasis is that they are together. How often should we take communion as a church? The scriptures don't say. 1 Corinthians 11 says, as often as you choose to do it. So right now, our church does it every other month. Lord willing, by fall, I want us to move to every month. Now, you deacons, please don't fall out of your chair. There's probably some things we can do to simplify it. But I'd love the day when at least monthly we're coming together to celebrate communion and think about what Jesus Christ has done for us twice as often as we do it now. May 6 is our next communion service. Let's enjoy it. Let's see the unity in it that Jesus brings us together around the bread and the juice. Number five, prayer brings us together. Prayer brings us together. What unifies our church? Praying 
together. Luke loves to emphasize the praying community. In two of his books, the noun and verb forms of prayer occur 46 times. He emphasizes this community of prayer. Bible Center has a rich history of prayer with our prayer room and old prayer meetings and community groups of prayer. Let me just take the mask off for a minute. If all the things as a church that we need to work on of this list of nine, this is it. Right now, I would say maybe barely passing when it comes to prayer. And I want to invite you with me this summer to hear God's invitation to greater prayer as a church. There's a lot of praying going on, again, in the smaller groups. But I've heard stories about things Pastor Eric has done in the past to bring the entire church together to pray. And our pastors feel God's invitation to that. So this is what we're going to do this summer. Throughout the whole summer, some of you are going to go to Myrtle Beach. But when you come back from Myrtle Beach, we're going to pray through the Psalms together. And when you're here this summer, I'll be preaching through the Psalms. We're going to pray through the Psalms. We're going to give you guides on how you can pray through the Psalms. Psalms and prayers of anxiety. Psalms and prayers of pain and suffering. Prayers of hope and hopelessness. It's going to be a great summer. But we're going to pray together more as a church. And I believe God's going to do great things because of it. Alone we can do so little, but together we can do so much. What unifies our church quickly, number six, serving the community together. Serving the community together. Verse 43 tells us that the church and the apostles served their community and there was great awe by those who witnessed. They did signs of wonders, things that those of us who aren't apostles can't do. But listen to this, and we'll throw the quote up on the screen. One historian writes this about the early church. More than any of its competitors, Christianity attracted all races and classes. Judaism never quite escaped from its racial bonds. Christianity, however, gloried in its appeal to Jew and Gentile, Greek and barbarian. The Greek and Roman philosophies never really won the allegiances of the masses. They appealed to the educated, the morally and socially cultured. But Christianity drew the lowly and unlettered. Yet it also developed a philosophy of its own which commanded the respect of many of the educated. Christianity was for both sexes, while its rivals were primarily more for men. And the church welcomed both rich and poor, no other religion, in so many groups and strata of society. The question must be raised... Why this unprecedented comprehensiveness came to appear to the world first in Christianity. In your bulletin today, there's information on may we serve. We'd love for our entire church, 100% participation, to jump into at least one activity of may we serve. We're going to serve meals to CPS workers we're going to bless the Charleston Police Department. You're going to be out with the Davis Child Shelter. I'm going to be out. You're going to be. We're going to be serving our city. And the reason we're doing it is just to say, here's a glimpse of what the gospel looks like. Here's a glimpse of what the hope of Jesus Christ. It looks like a meal. It looks like a cut lawn. It looks like a cookout. It looks like new clothes. May we serve because alone we can do so little. Together, we can do so much. 
If you're taking notes, I'll give you the last three. We find that the church was giving together. The church was doing life together. And the church was worshiping together. Giving together, doing life together, and worshiping together. Why is it that every Sunday we ask you to consider giving to the ministry of Bible Center? The reason is because the early church gave to the ministry through their church as well. As we put all our resources together, imagine what we can do. 3,000 or so people call Bible Center Church their home. Any one of us can never, with our own resources, no matter how wealthy you are, any one of us can never bless the entire city nearly as much as all of us together. If you're not a regular giver to Bible Center, let me ask you to consider jumping in and joining in the mission. That's how we do special needs proms. That's how we do May We Serve. That's how we do all the ministries taking place here on Sunday or every day of the week. Giving together. Emphasis is together. They, they did life together. They're in people's homes. They're in people's lives. And in verse 47, it says they praised together. Do you know that worship was always intended to be the unifying factor of the local church? Worship was always intended to be the unifying factor of the local church. I've learned something over the last two years since I've been here. I've learned that Bible Center has experienced just a little bit of change. Not, not a, lot, a lot of change. I learned here recently that for years, Bible Center only had one worship style, just one. And then this young pastor came along named Pastor Sean and started this 8 a.m. contemporary service. Well, of course, it's just going to stay little and it's going to stay small and it's going to stay at 8 a.m. But eventually that thing grew. Some of you have told me that that service met for 10 years at 8 a.m. 10 years. We have an 8 a.m. hymn service now. But 10 years it met. And then when we moved here, it moved into the 9 o'clock service and the traditional was 1045. And then another young pastor came along. And I see, I see the world through rainbows and unicorns, just to know that about me. I just think like, yeah, it's, what's the big deal? We can all just, yeah, we do this and nobody will care, nobody will mind. And so we tried to unify the worship services and nobody cared, nobody minded, completely calm, complete. No, of course. It's been hard for some fun. I'm like, what's the big deal? But now that I've been a senior pastor here for two years, I'm so much wiser and I'm, I'm so much more seasoned. Now I'm beginning to understand there's just some things that are really, really, really hard for folks. They're hard for all of us. And I'm going to ask you to do this. Be in prayer. Our pastors right now are working to see. The hymn service is growing. I'm loving. There's about 50 or 60 people that meet up there. We, we're almost like our own little church. But we're trying to figure out how can we get that hymn service back down in here? How can we do maybe three services on a Sunday morning? and do a traditional or a hymn service down here. We believe we have people moving into the area. We have our retirement village coming. And there are younger folks who even tell me, hey, I think I really connect with that service. Pray with us. We are not trying to do this to hurt you. We're trying to do this to bless you, but more importantly, to bless our city who needs Jesus. 
There's 186,000 people in the Kanawha Valley. 32,000 are under the age of 18. And I know not all of them want to come to the 9 and the 1030. But we want to create a space, maybe through three services, where everybody of every age can come. There's a lot of good things going on behind the scenes. Pray with us. But let's ask, what can we do to make much of Jesus to as many cultures as possible? I recently heard that Rick Warren, one of my heroes, started a Hawaiian service. (laughs) We're not starting any Hawaiian services, at least not yet. But what could God do? Imagine with our baptism and our communion and our worship and our giving and, and our ministry to the city, what could the Lord do in 2018? We caught a glimpse of it this weekend. This and I'm done. On Friday, I went over to see one of our uh, students, Casey Legg, just signed with WVU to be a kicker. Is Casey in this service? He's downstairs teaching. He's teaching the kids downstairs. Let's give Casey a hand. That's that's still a pretty big deal. The kid's like uh, kicking 60-yard field goals. He's 18. Just think of this potential. I can't wait to throw socks at him on TV while while, while I'm watching a Mountaineer game. Um, But I went on Friday to watch him sign. It was exciting. I'm grateful for the family for inviting me and went over to Cross Lanes Christian School where he attends. And then Friday night... His story continues into Friday night. Friday night, we had our special needs prom, as you saw the video. And so many of you served. You volunteered. So many of you, uh, you worked in food. You were a greeter. You were a buddy. You rolled out the red carpet, literally. You served in so many ways behind the scenes. Emily King did a phenomenal job setting this thing up. Just killed it. This particular gentleman coming in right here is Thomas. Thomas, that night I got a chance to meet Thomas. His buddy was George Bohatch. George isn't here this morning, but George can dance, I learned. George can dance. And so I'm talking to Thomas, and I said, Thomas, what do you like? What do you like to do for fun? And he just kept saying, I like WVU football. I like WVU. He just kept saying, I like WVU football. And I said, Thomas, we have a WVU football player here tonight. He's here. He might have only been there for five hours, and he's never stepped foot on Mountaineer Field, but he's a WVU football player. And Thomas looked at me and said, can I have his autograph? So I went and found Casey. I asked somebody to grab me a piece of paper. Another person grabbed me a pen. And Casey took the time to write his autograph for Thomas. Thomas put it in his pocket, and he asked George, his buddy, don't let me lose this. It meant the world to him. And what God showed me Friday night was this. Alone, we can do so little. But together, we can do so much. Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you for what you are doing at Bible Center Church. I pray that 2018 will be a year of unity around the gospel. I am asking you, dear God, to help us to hold our tongue, to restrain our thoughts and opinions to the detriment of others, but help us to love like Jesus loved. Help us to be like the mature of Romans 15, who give up our preferences for the sake of another. God, may it begin with me as a senior pastor. But help all of us to give up our prayer for the sake of the gospel. 
God, we're not satisfied with just 2,000 people knowing the gospel at Bible Center. May we not rest until the gospel has been given to all 186,000 people in Kanawha County. And then, Lord, we'll launch out to Boone County and Putnam County and others where our members belong. God, will you help us to be for the gospel and for the city and to do this together in Jesus' name. Amen.